After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. There's a movie that came out in uh, the late 80s called Babette's Feast. Some of you might be familiar with that film. It's about uh, two very pious sisters that live in a really austere religious community on the coast of Denmark in uh, the early 19th century. And uh, the father of these two sisters had planted this convent and died, and the two sisters had taken it over in his death. They had never married. They had spurned a couple of would-be husbands in their earlier years and dedicated their lives to leading and serving this community. And the movie picks up later in the lives of these two sisters, and their community really is dwindling and pretty lifeless. And then one day, a woman appears at their doorstep, unannounced, and her name is Babette. And uh, she appears with a letter from a former parishioner, a former member of the community, recommending her as a housekeeper. And it turns out that Babette is a refugee from the French Revolution, and Babette stays with the sisters for years. And throughout her time with the sisters, her only tie to her former life in France is that a friend of hers in Paris renews for her every year a lottery ticket. And one day she receives a message that she has indeed won the lottery. She wins 10,000 francs, which wasn't an insane amount of money, but it was a significant amount of money that would have radically altered the course of her life. But instead of using the money to go back to France and start a new life for herself, Babette decides to spend the money by preparing a delicious feast a huge meal for the sisters and everyone else in this religious community. And so she hires her nephew in Paris to go and get all of these ingredients. And one of the funniest parts of the movie is that all of these ingredients and items start arriving that no one in the town has ever seen or heard of. They're so exotic and luxurious. And in fact, these people being very religious and serious are a little bit worried that this sort of sinful luxuriance is not going to work in their community. But out of respect to Babette, they agree to go along with the feast, and finally the day of the party arrives, and everyone sits down at this big, long table, and dinner is served. And it's just a remarkable meal, an incredible meal, so incredible that no one at the table is even qualified to comment on how good the food tastes. They don't even know what to do with the food. It's so wonderful and so beautiful. And the best part of the movie is that as the feast progresses, you can see as the meal goes on that the meal itself, the fellowship around the table, begins to do things like break down old grudges and uh, prejudices are taken away and hard feelings go away and mutual distrust that has existed for years or decades in some cases vanishes and after the meal is over, towards the end of the movie, Babette reveals that she was once a chef at the most famous restaurant in Paris, and that she has spent all of her money 
on this one meal because for her this meal was not just about food it was an act of self-sacrifice it was an act of appreciation and so the sisters when they hear this are just aghast and they say to her now you're going to be poor for the rest of your life but Babette as the film concludes says an artist is never poor an artist is never poor and the power behind that movie um, is how it depicts the beauty of meals the beauty of food, of fellowship around a table. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I know I have at some times in my life. When we share food and drink and enjoy sitting down with people, there is, there's a rich human connection that takes place. And sometimes it can be so rich that it can actually heal wounds. And you know what? God knows this. God knows this. There's a reason God describes heaven as a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's a reason when God came into our world in the person of Jesus, that Jesus came, Luke tells us, eating and drinking. So much eating and so much drinking that many accused Jesus, Jesus of all people, of being a glutton, someone who eats too much, and of being a drunkard. Someone who drinks too much. Jesus is all about meals. He's all about food and drink. And the meals of Jesus tell us a lot about the mission of Jesus. Don't miss that. The meals of Jesus, they tell us a lot about the mission of Jesus. And here's how. The excess of food and the excess of drink show us the excess of the grace of God. They show us the excess of the grace of God. And that's what we're going to look at in this series that we're calling Meals with Jesus. The majority of Luke's gospel is set as Jesus doing one of three things. He's either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. Almost the entire story, if you read it through in one sitting, shows that kind of setting. Food is central to the story. In fact, one commentator on Luke says that Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. <laughs> Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. And so today, we're going to begin by looking at this really wonderful short story that Karen read for us about Jesus meeting Levi or Matthew, the same author of Matthew's gospel, by the way, and then eating in his house. And so I want to divide the section or the story into four sections, four parts. Here's what we're going to do. First, Jesus' call. Second, Levi's party. Third, the Pharisees' grumbling. Fourth, Jesus' mission. There's your outline. Here we go. First, Jesus' call. Look in verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus goes straight for this man named Levi, whom Luke tells us only one thing about. He was a tax collector sitting at his tax booth. It's very important for you to know, if you're going to understand this story, and if you're going to understand Jesus, that a tax collector was a moral untouchable. A tax collector was a moral untouchable. They were thieves. They skimmed off the top of the taxes that they collected from their neighbors and relatives and friends, and they pocketed it themselves, and often got very wealthy off of that. But they were more than thieves. They were also traitors. 
They were traitors to their nation because they worked for the occupying Roman Empire whom the people of Israel despised. And so they collected taxes for the enemy. They were traitors to their nation, but they were even worse than that. They were thieves and traitors to their nation, turncoats, but they were also traitors to God. They were traitors to God from the eyes of an Israelite because the Israelites knew that God was going to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. And tax collectors had allied with God's enemies. So tax collectors are religiously offensive, they're socially offensive, they're psychologically offensive, you name another offensive, and that's a tax collector. And that is exactly who Jesus, God's Messiah, the leader of Israel, recruits. Look at the earlier stories in Luke 5. Just real quickly, who does Jesus spend his time with? Verses 12 through 16, Jesus hangs out with an unclean leper. Verses 17 through 26, he spends time with a helpless, hopeless paralytic. And here, verses 27 through 32, Jesus goes after a selfish, sinful, traitorous tax collector named Levi. Here's the point. Jesus takes initiative with the rejected. And he still does that. Jesus takes initiative with the rejected. The first thing we learn about the real God in this story, the first thing we learn about the real God is that the objects of his love are the messed up. The objects of his love are the sinful, the despised, the forgotten, people like Levi, and guess what? People like you and me. Jesus very simply comes to Levi and says, follow me, verse 27, and Levi, verse 28, immediately does so. And Luke tells us that Levi leaves everything behind, gets up, and follows Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Levi's broke because he's about to bring Jesus into his home and have a party in the next verse. But it does mean that Levi, in an instant, radically reverses his priorities. He radically reverses his priorities. Can you see that? I hope you can. And I want you to pause and I want you to think about this because this is one of the ways that the Bible this morning and the Holy Spirit is interacting with your life. This is not just an abstract story somewhere out there for you to hear and think, huh, that's interesting, and then move ahead as if nothing has happened. No, Jesus Christ right here is speaking to you. And what he's saying through this story is that you can know that Jesus has truly called you. You can know that Jesus has truly spoken into your life when you prize him above everything else. The evidence of Jesus' call and work in your life is that Jesus now occupies the throne room of your hearts. This story tells us that Jesus and the word of Jesus, the word of Jesus is, is invested with like a nuclear power to tear you away from everything that was most precious to you before. And the surest way to break the grip of creature comforts in your heart is the discipling call of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, really, Levi is like all of us. Levi had spent much of his life acquiring what he thought was most valuable, and Levi was the kind of guy that would roll over anyone else to do it. Then Jesus comes and erupts, erupts his entire way of life. And so the question the Spirit asks of you is that, has that happened in your life? 
Has that happened in your life? Would you drop everything? Would you drop everything and follow Jesus? Is he that valuable to you? Or, or is he what he can be in many of our American households? Just one of the many constellations that orbits the real God, yourself. The scripture, and especially the gospels themselves, speak to us and they challenge us here. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to see him as infinitely valuable, as Levi began to here. So Jesus approaches Levi and calls him. And then we see, secondly, Levi's party. Man, I love this story. And I love this part. <laughs> Levi's met Jesus. And I would love to have known if that conversation was broader than just Jesus saying, follow me. I suspect it was, but we'll never know. But what we do know is that Levi's a changed man. He leaves everything, as we've seen, and then he joins in the Jesus mission right away. Look at what he does. He throws a party. Verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And then what else does he do? He invited all of his tax collector friends. And many others, notice Luke says many others, the Pharisees say these many others are also sinners, just to make sure that they can all get lumped into the same category. A lot of bad people from the Pharisee religious perspective are here. I love this. I love this. Levi's doing two things here. First, he's celebrating in a way that any culture can understand, with food and with drinks. And then secondly, Levi is using hospitality food and drink, his home and his table. And he's using hospitality as a way to connect his friends with this man who has called him, Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Levi, when he experiences transformation from meeting Jesus, doesn't isolate himself from his former relationships? That thought doesn't even cross Levi's minds. Instead, what he does is he thinks, I know a lot of people that need to experience what I just experienced in encountering this man. And so he invites his associates and his friends and all of his tax collector colleagues into his host, home, excuse me, into his home, and he shares Jesus with them, literally shares Jesus with them through a party. Through a party. He does his first evangelism. His first evangelism, not by preaching or teaching, but by eating and drinking with people. Okay, so a very practical point here for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who are a part of our church, the first step very often for you to join in God's mission is to go hang out with your friends who are de-churched or spiritually starved or unbelieving, or even better, to invite them over to your house. Watch a game together. Cook out together. Play golf together. Go listen to live music together. Do whatever you enjoy together. Give of yourself and open your life and your house. Let's say one night a week, two nights a month. That's one of the major reasons that practically we want our community groups, our small group ministries to be meeting in people's homes. One of the main reasons is that almost all of our community building and all of our evangelism happens in people's houses, just like it did here in Levi's house. The point, one among many, of course, is that we can't do our work of pointing sinners to the Savior unless we spend time with them. Jesus calls Levi. Levi throws a party, and next we see that some people don't like it. 
the Pharisees grumble. Verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. What a great word. In Greek, which is the language this was written in, that is a, a word that sounds like what it means. It, the word in Greek is egogogon. Egogogon. They're grumbling. They're grumbling about Jesus. The Pharisees are offended. They're angry. They're angry at what Jesus is doing, and they're angry at who Jesus is doing it with. First, they're angry at what he's doing. Jesus, unlike the serious Pharisees, Jesus is enjoying himself. Have you, have you ever thought about Jesus in that way? Do you have room in your view of Jesus for that? Jesus is celebrating. Jesus is he's partying. He's having fun. He's eating and drinking. Jesus isn't some mystical shaman locked up in some temple on the top of a mountain that you have to ascend the hill to get to. Jesus is not some desert monk hiding off all by himself all the time, waiting for the faithful to approach him. Jesus is fully human. And because of that, Jesus, more than any other person who has ever lived, enjoyed the fullness of the beauty and goodness of God's good world. We'll see that again and again in this series. Pharisees don't like that. They don't like that Jesus is celebrating. But more importantly, they don't like who. Who he's doing it with. Now, think about this with me. The Pharisees are, we have such a negative view of them, and <laughs> rightly so. But I want you to understand that the Pharisees were serious Bible students. The Pharisees were no joke, theologically. They were the conservative religious folks of the day. They were the people that would have gone to PCA churches. And they are angry at who Jesus is eating and drinking with. So the problem with the Pharisees, fundamentally, is not necessarily the party. I mean, the Pharisees are students of the Bible. They've read Isaiah. They know that God's kingdom is going to be a party. The problem is with the guest list. The problem is that these tax collectors that Jesus, who claims to be God's Messiah, is hanging out with, are unclean. They're irreligious. They're ignorant of the law. They've never been seen in the temple, and they sure don't give any money to the temple. And here's God's professed Messiah sitting down to eat with God's enemies. And so they grumbled. They grumbled to each other, and they grumbled to Jesus, and they grumbled to Jesus' disciples. They can't believe this. They're offended. So why? Why? Why are the Pharisees so upset? You've got to get this if you really want to get the meaning of this story, if you really want to understand what's happening in your life. Why are the Pharisees so upset? Why is it so problematic for them that Jesus is with tax collectors? One word. They're upset at one word. They are upset at grace. And here's why. Grace cannot be integrated with self-righteousness. Grace cannot be integrated with self-importance. And that is the ultimate differentiating point. You see, the Pharisees work really hard. They work really hard to be worthy enough for themselves, for one another, and for God. The Pharisees, I'm not kidding, memorized the Bible. That is not an exaggeration. They memorized the Old Testament. Raise your hand if you've memorized the Old Testament. Carrie, don't raise your hand. I know you're close. They memorized the Bible, okay? The Pharisees gave money in droves. The Pharisees held the seminars and the classes. The Pharisees wrote and read books. The Pharisees prayed 
fastidiously. The Pharisees, in many outward ways, were the ideal church members. The Pharisees were the elders and the deacons. They were on the committees and the boards. They started the private Christian schools. But Levi? Levi and tax collectors? What did they do? Here's what they did. They knew they could never be worthy. (laughs) They knew they needed only one thing. Unmerited, free favor from God. They knew deep down what a mess they were and that nothing in the universe could change that except by the slim chance the real and only God might simply choose to love them. Their only chance was God's mercy, grace. Grace was all they relied on. You know, it's ironic, actually. It's ironic because really it's the Pharisees that need the tax collectors. You know that? And that's still true today. Pharisees need sinners. Tax collectors were essential to the Pharisees' view of their world. How? Well, here's how. The Pharisees and all religious people of all stripes at every time and in every place see life as a ladder. Life is a ladder. And your righteous acts move you up the ladder toward God. Your sense of well-being, therefore comes from your place on the ladder. So nothing makes you feel better than being able to look down a few rungs. (laughs) Than being able to look down a few rungs on other people, read tax collectors and sinners who are not as high up on the ladder as you. The Pharisees needed tax collectors to make them look and feel righteous. Are you on the ladder? Are you on the ladder? Are you worried about your place on the performance chart? Are you looking up or down at others? You are. You are. And I am. Because that is our heart's default operating system. We need people who are worse than we are so that we can compare ourselves to them and feel better about our own moral achievements. And then we subconsciously hope that God will feel the same about us that we feel about ourselves in our best moments. And you know you're on the ladder when your life consists of this constant pendulum swing. From one pole to another. One pole of the pendulum swing is moments of deep despair and dread. Moments of deep despair and dread that you have in actually your more lucid times. (laughs) When you're most spiritually lucid, you're going to have dread because then you know the truth about yourself. That's one end of the vacillation, one end of the pendulum. The other end of the pendulum is moments of deep pride, deep ego, deep self-importance. When you say, job well done. And that leaves you really in a radically insecure place internally and with other people and most of all with God. Because you can't be certain ever if you're high enough on the ladder. You can't be certain ever if you're high enough on the ladder. So you swing from despair to pride. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Doubt. Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams. Uh, And in this movie, Meryl Streep plays a nun 
who is a part of a convent in, on the East Coast. Her name's Sister Jane, and she's in a Catholic high school. And the headmaster of this high school is a local priest played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the whole um, theme and plot of the film is that Sister Jane, played by Meryl Streep, is convinced that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, that this priest, is abusing young men at the school. Um, and she makes all manner of terrible accusations And she works behind the scenes throughout the movie to destroy this man. And the brilliance of the movie is that you can never be sure as a viewer until the very end if the man is guilty or not. You can't ever be sure where he is on the ladder compared to Sister Jane. But at the end, it's revealed that the man is, in fact, innocent. Even though Sister Jane manages to get him to resign and basically destroys his life. And the film reveals her own prejudices and our own prejudices. It reveals our own desires to be above others on the ladder of life. And in the very last scene of this movie, Sister Jane is talking with another nun, a sister played by Amy Adams, and she has this momentary breakdown. And she begins crying. And she says through a veil of tears, I have so many doubts. I have such doubts. And the first Noel begins playing on an organ, and the camera zooms away, and the credits roll. What is it that Sister Jane is doubting? Is she doubting if this man is really guilty? Is she doubting if God is on her side? No, 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 no. Sister Jane is doubting her own place on the ladder. Sister Jane's doubting herself, Is she really righteous enough? What Sister Jane needed, what the Pharisees needed, what you and I need all the time is not doubt, but certainty. The certainty Jesus provides that, in fact, you can never get high enough on the ladder to reach God. You can never get high enough on the ladder to reach God. Listen, you cannot get high enough on the ladder, no matter how good you've been, no matter how many times you attend a church, no matter what books you've read, to reach God. God has to come down to you. And he has. Let's look at that last. Jesus' mission. Jesus' response to the Pharisees, verse 31. It, it gets to the heart of the entire issue, doesn't it? Very quickly, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're asking of him something that is utterly illogical. Something of him that is utterly unhelpful. They're asking the great doctor, the great physician, to never be around sick people. And Jesus says, I came for the sick. I came for the sinful. Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Jesus is interested in recovery. He's not interested in quarantining the sick off from healing. Jesus died to forgive people who really do need forgiveness. Jesus rose from the dead to save people who really need saving. Jesus gave himself up for sinners. Listen to Martin Luther. Beware of ever desiring such purity that you do not want to seem to yourself to be a sinner, for Christ dwells only in sinners. Of course, the point is that we are all sinful, that we're all in need of repentance, that we're all in need of rescue. And the question, of course, is do you know that about yourself? I'm sure you know that about others. I'm sure you know it about your spouse right after a fight 
and no doubt you know it about your kids. The question is, do you know it about yourself? Do you see your need? Right now, Jesus is seeking people, just like he was in Levi's day, who sense their real position before God, one of utter and complete desperation. Do you sense that? If you, de- if you do sense your real position before God, then God right now is calling you to repent. God calls you to repent. Now, what does that mean? To repent means to open your heart up to God. To repent means to see yourself as you truly are. To repent means to finally be honest with yourself. To repent means that you are ready for God to work on you, his healing power. To repent means that you're ready for God to enter your life and begin renewal. To repent is to jump off of the performance ladder. Get off the ladder! Off! And let God, in his deep love, catch you. He will catch you every time. Come talk to us about it. We started this church for people high up on the ladder. The gospel calls you to jump off into the arms of Jesus. Last story, then we're done. A third movie today, Little Miss Sunshine. Great movie. I love that movie. Uh, It's a story of a, a girl, awkward girl, strange girl, who uh, by default (laughs) wins uh, entry into this beauty contest. And uh, her dysfunctional family sets off for the beauty pageant. And this girl's name is Olive. She's an awkward girl. She's got these big glasses. She's very strange, very weird. And it's hilarious that she's about to enter a beauty contest to any normal, rational person. And at one point, Olive says, I don't want to be a loser because my daddy hates losers. And the irony is that her dad is a failed motivational speaker. He's a failed motivational speaker. He's very clearly a loser. And at one point, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There's winners and there's losers. And as he says the word losers, the camera pans across the family. There's his foul-mouthed father, his suicidal brother-in-law, his son who refuses to speak, his downtrodden wife who's you know, trying to keep it all together, and himself. And they're all thrown together in this old Volkswagen van, which is itself dysfunctional. Um, The air won't uh, start, the door falls off, the horn is constantly on, and every time they start it, they have to push start the vehicle. And there's this one scene in the movie where they realize they've left Olive at a gas station. And so they have to turn around, but they can't stop the car because if they stop the car, the car won't start. And so it shows the van coming this direction and Olive hopping in and then, then pushing the van back in this direction, attempting to close the door. And as that's happening, the dad's voice is heard. He says, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. And at the end, they finally arrive at this beauty contest. And the contrast is, as you might expect, pretty vivid. Um, this beauty contest is, it's like the epitome of the perfect manicured, respectable world, without blemish, without fault. But there's this undertone of envy and rivalry and nastiness and arrogance. And the two worlds collide. And it's pretty comical. And that's a picture of the coming of Jesus. That's a picture of what's going on at Levi's party. Two worlds are colliding. Jesus comes crashing in like a beat-up Volkswagen van on our world of self-reliance and pride and hypocrisy 
with his utterly subversive message of grace. And Jesus says to any who are lost, no one gets left behind. Which world are you in? Are you in the old beat-up Volkswagen van trying to get the horn to shut off, aware of how embarrassing you are to yourself and everyone around you, only reliant on grace? Or are you in the world of trying to keep your life pretty and manicured, hoping that no one will ever know the real you? Here's the truth. God knows. Jesus knows. And he loves you. Let's pray.